This is episode 327. Have you heard of the latest vegan slash plant-based Netflix documentary series? Well, if you haven't, it's called You Are What You Eat, a twin experiment, which compared a vegan diet to an omnivore diet, and it has divided people all over the globe. Split twins right down the middle, if you like. (laughs) And so what this episode is all about is me reviewing the science, the Netflix series, and talking to the good things about this show, and shockingly, there were some. I'll pull apart and highlight the many bad things that both the TV series did and the actual research paper did, and trying my best to save you from being manipulated to go and make life-altering decisions as a result of some pretty pictures, good story selling, and bad science. If you want a whole barrel of controversial thoughts, then you are in the right place. (laughs) Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome back to another episode of the show, and I'm really excited to get into this because this is very controversial conversation right now. And even if you're listening to this at some point in the future, there's no doubt that this is still controversial conversation because the vegan movement is a significant part of our world and has been for several years and will be for many years to come. But I want to talk to it today and this conversation around the documentary, You Are What You Eat, The Twin Experiment. Uh, But before we do that, I want to let you know that in 2024, it's my mission to coach 500 people to get control of their sugar cravings and sugar binges so they can stop yo-yo dieting, stop obsessing about food, and finally create a body that they feel confident being in. And if you'd like to get involved in that part of my world and you feel like that message relates to where you're at, then please scroll to the show notes and click the link and start a conversation with me about how we might be able to work together. So with this documentary, Netflix's latest vegan documentary or plant-based documentary, I actually watched all of the episodes and I re-watched some parts of it to get really clear on what they were saying. And I took six pages of handwritten notes. And I did this because I was asked by several people to review this latest documentary and give some feedback about the nutritional information and the nutrition science. And so just quickly, a little bit about my background if you're new here is that I am a scientist. I've worked in hospital settings, in research settings, particularly in the areas of molecular biology. And so I have a relatively decent understanding compared to the average Joe that might just you know, be sort of YouTube educated or nutrition educated via documentaries like this. And I actually worked in a nutritional epigenetics lab as well. I'm also a qualified nutritional therapist and nutritionist. And so I have a decent idea about this. And I also, that, that background is useful because it helps me interpret and understand research literature, which for many people can actually sound confusing and, you know, a little bit, what are all of these big giant words that I'm not familiar with? So I share that with you just to give you a bit of confidence as to what I'm sharing. Now, one of the things that I noticed across YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and all of the places where people are talking about this is many of the people that spoke on it that are actually in the low-carb community or the keto community or the carnivore community is they didn't actually watch the whole thing. And I would say that that's disappointing because they're giving opinions based on a very small snippet of what was delivered, which is, you know, it's their choice. And despite the fact I might agree with a lot of things they have to say, I made the intention to watch all of it. 
and really get clear on what was being said, not just let my ego react to whatever was being presented in front of me in episode one. Now, interestingly, it was at this point in time when I'm recording this, which is January, it is currently the third most watched thing in January on Netflix in Australia and the USA. And so what it was is basically it was 22 twins. And this is really important because one of the difficult things to control for in human studies is the genetic variation. It's hard to say, hey, this person experiences this and this person experiences this and say, but what role does genetics play? And so the reason this is interesting is because we used, we, like I was involved, not me, but they used twins, which means that they put one half of the twin on one diet and one half on another diet, and they were able to control, theoretically, for genetic variation. So that removes that factor from the data and concern and discussion of a scientific report because there is almost no genetic variation. And so I just want to quickly, before I get into this, and I'm going to talk about the good, the bad, the things I agree with, the things I disagree with. I'm going to bring your attention to a few things that you might have missed uh, because it was incredibly well produced. So it would be very easy to miss some really important points that are a part of this conversation. But I first want to thank Joe Witten at Quirky Cooking. She sent me an email and said, Hey, do you have an episode on this yet? And I said, uh, I'm going to cook one up for you right here because she was receiving a lot of questions about it. I've received a lot of questions about it. And so I have done my own research. I've also looked at the research of others. Joe was on episode 315 of the podcast, by the way. So check out her stuff. She's amazing. And also want to shout out to Diana Rogers. So she's been on this podcast too before. So she's a registered dietitian. She was on episode 97. So some of her content was useful. And also a friend of mine named Melissa. She also provided with me with some useful insights and information and analysis. And she has a master's in public health nutrition. And there was content from lots of different people that I absorbed because I wanted to get a well-rounded picture of what the nutrition world and medical world's reaction to this is, what the public's reaction to this is, what my own reaction to this was, and hopefully put together some kind of concise, logical thing that makes sense on this podcast. So thanks to everybody that contributed and all the people that are having this discussion. And fundamentally, I think, firstly, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that we're debating and talking about health and nutrition. We should not approach this stuff as, you know, as if it's a religion and veganism often presents itself as a religion. But my point is that the fact that we're talking about healthy food, healthy ways of living, ways to improve our lives is fantastic. And and I often think that sometimes the carnivores and the vegans, they're actually fighting for the same thing, (laughs) which is for us all to be really healthy. Um, But sometimes those conversations can get quite deadly. Anyway, let's get into this conversation about you are what you eat. So my initial concerns off the bat are that eight weeks, an eight-week study is a tiny time frame. Not only that, is that they used famous vegan influencers and business owners that were included in this to push products and services. And in many aspects, it almost felt like a billboard for cashew cheese, which isn't cheese at all, by the way. It's its own product, right? Or for 11 Madison Garden which is you know, now this super famous, world famous three Michelin star restaurant. And sure, anybody that's trying to push a cause for anything, me included, it makes sense to use people of reputable nature so that you have influence over a group of people. However, I would argue that science is meant to be devoid of that type of thing. It's meant to be without that influence because it's meant to be just the truth, right? I mean, we know that big pharma and big agriculture and 
you know, everything's run by the extreme levels of capitalism that those organizations that play in the billions of dollars kind of world, you know, that's the capitalist reality and recruiting these other people that want to push their own products and services and agendas is a part of it. However, science at its core should be about the truth. So to me, it's very concerning that this felt like a billboard for lots of different businesses that sell vegan products, as well as the flip side of that, the demonization of anything that's not vegan. And so the other thing is that's concerning for me is that, and we'll get into the science, and so this is just a general statement, but we'll get further into it, is that this actually appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association, so the JAMA. And that's concerning for me because in my opinion, this was pretty poor science. And for it to be in such a reputable, high-level journal is concerning that they would allow this type of thing in. However, my experience with journals is just like every other part of medicine, it's a business. You pay certain fees, you pay certain amounts, and sure, there's gatekeepers for the quality of information that gets in here, but I'm genuinely concerned that this level of research got into that journal. There's also two major variables, okay? Diet and exercise, both of those things changed in these people's lives. So how can you claim that diet was the influence? You can't, right? The other thing is that Loma Linda University where experts were involved. And we know, again, they're another plant-based vegan propagandist organization that are pushing this narrative on the rest of the world. Okay. And the other thing is plant-based is a very vague term. Okay. Plant-based, is that plant-based as in some meat is involved, eggs or some animal protein is involved, or is it just straight up vegan? Like, because chemotherapy is plant based. <laughs> and guess what? So are uh, many toxic pesticides and herbicides. They're plant based. Are we vegan or are we not vegan? It's important to distinguish that because this is science. And if we're going to talk about facts and evidence, being vague on a documentary by saying plant based is unclear. And we can't make conclusions about unclear information. Another concern that I had is that the author. Christopher Gardner, the PhD who ran this, he's a professor at Stanford. I hope I'm getting that right. He receives funding from Beyond Meat, which is one of those fake meat companies that make fake burgers. And he did not disclose his ideological convictions to the plant-based diet in the documentary or in the paper either. These plant-based convictions were not shared clearly about what he believes and the reason that this is important is because obviously the head of the study, the person pushing everything that has a particular conviction or belief system about something, has a deep bias to produce a particular outcome from this study. Whether they know it or not, and whether that can be controlled for or not, I don't know. He is also the director of the Stanford Plant-Based Diet Initiative, right? So another thing that he's heavily invested in. He also sits as part of the advisory committee of the US Dietary Guidelines which dictates school lunches, prison meals. His involvement in that is about lowering or raising the saturated fat content of food. And so this man has a position in that organization that influences an entire culture, an entire country's consumption of food. The other concern is that funding came from Kyle Vogt. Vogt? I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. V-O-G-T. And he is referred to amongst the social media world as being part of the vegan mafia because he is a Silicon Valley investor that focuses on vegan investments that puts significant amount of money and funding into things like this. He also funded the Game Changers. So I did a Game Changers uh, debunking episode 
episode 49. Oh my God, that was a long time ago. (laughs) So the vegan mafia have all of this money and funding and power and influence over organizations, you know, education bodies, governments, because they have so much money. And so they can throw that money around in directions that they believe or want to influence. Whether that be solely profit-driven or whether that be ideologically driven, I don't know. And also it had, like I said before, it had people in here, these celebrities, you know, the New York mayor who's responsible for pushing Meatless Mondays and I think it was Meat Free Fridays or something like that in schools and encouraging the entire population away from these types of food. Daniel Hum, who was the head chef and founder of um, Eleven Madison Garden, again, like his ideological views should have nothing to do with influencing the perception of scientific research by the public. Also, the CEO of Impossible Foods was in this documentary series. The CEO of fake meat companies and the founder of Vegan Cheese. This is heavily biased. The presentation is heavily biased. And I want to give you my biases so that you know where I'm coming from and you can factor them in. Are you ready? I have no biases. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, of course, I have biases because I'm a human being, but I have received no funding from carnivore groups or low carb groups or vegan groups or anybody like that. I have, legally speaking, And economically speaking, I have zero conflicts of interest, other than I try best to not let bullshit through the filter of my brain. (laughs) But occasionally, it slips through. And I've tried veganism myself. I've tried carnivore. I've tried lots of different things in an attempt to understand what different diets feel like in my body, how they work economically for my budget and my day-to-day life and practicality. But I do have my own biases around, you know, this type of stuff. and And that bias is that any extreme diet is extreme and any diet that eliminates fundamental food groups that have fueled us through all of human evolution are concerning to me in different ways. But I'll go into that a little bit later. Okay, so I want to talk about the results of this study. Okay, so this study states, and the actual study states, the healthy vegan diet led to improved cardiometabolic outcomes compared with a healthy omnivorous diet. Okay, so let's look at whether or not that is true. So. First thing, and this is a problem with uh, nutrition research across the board, is adherence was self-reported. This is a problem that we learn in uni that's fundamental to nutrition research, a fundamental problem, I should say, which is that people have to self-report through surveys and their own memory. We know that self-reported food intake and food frequency questionnaires are unreliable and should not be used to make any sort of scientific claim because people forget People lie, people feel shame and guilt, which informs the things that they put down. And if they've been ultra healthy, it's called the healthy user bias for people that have been really, really good. And so they're eager to report and they might even put too much information down. So influencing the data even further. And so when we're relying on people who are imperfect and not good at remembering, then the data already begins to be shaky. Unless these people were locked in a hospital and fun fact is that I actually did I was a part of a clinical trial during my university years as a way to make money because I was just young and broke and all of the things. And we were actually locked in a hospital for nine days. We weren't allowed to get food from anywhere else. That is when you know the diet is controlled for because they couldn't eat anywhere else. They couldn't eat at restaurants or go to a friend's place or catch up with somebody or go on a date. We were locked in the hospital for nine days. We could not leave. And so that's how you control for diet. And these people were not in that situation. So the collection of data is shaky. 
And we know that across the board. It's taught in all levels of nutrition education that nutrition data collection is very difficult. All right, other factors of the results. Okay, cognition. So, you know, they wanted to see if anybody's cognitive abilities improved and there was no change in either group. Okay, cool. Eight weeks is not very long. Remember that. We wouldn't expect too much to change in eight weeks. Glucose and insulin. So glucose is sugar in your blood and insulin is the hormone that is released by the pancreas that allows that glucose to be transported and utilized or transported and stored. And so what they saw is that it was slightly reduced in the vegans, which is a positive thing, given that most people in the study were overweight in the beginning and visibly on the documentary, the people that we were presented, most of them seemed overweight. I will acknowledge that it was the women that seemed overweight and the men did not in the documentary series. So that's actually a good thing. If we want to see glucose and insulin numbers improve with people that are overweight, because most people that are overweight, at least as much so as the people in the documentary, and this is totally arbitrary for me to say this and not measured, but based on the people that I was presented with, I would assume most of them have some degree of glucose and insulin uh, sensitivity problems and resistance problems because they are overweight, okay? And it's a general comment. Now, another thing is to note calories. So I'm not a huge fan of the conversation about calories because I think it focuses people's attention in the wrong direction. But in the context of being scientific, this is an important metric for us to talk about because it looks like, based on the paper, that the vegans ate approximately 200 less calories a day for the duration of the trial. Now, you could conclude that the glucose and insulin results were due to the absence of those additional 200 calories in the diet. You could argue that simply having less food meant that there was less of a glucose or insulin response. And if you think about it, sure, 200 calories in a single day isn't much, but over the course of eight weeks, that ends up being 200 times eight weeks of the study. So what's that? Eight times seven, 56. So 200 times 56, that's 11,200 calories difference by the end of the study. That's important to note. So if the vegans were eating less calories, and by the end of it, it was 11,200 calories less, it makes sense that their blood sugar might be a bit better and that maybe they saw some weight loss, okay? Because they were eating less. So we do see positive changes in terms of short-term restrictive diets when it comes to calories. We see that all the time. And the fad diet community and personal trainers and nutritionists that are thinking short-term, they often leverage these studies as evidence that calorie restriction and calorie counting and calorie surplus and calorie deficit kind of thinking actually works. And for short-term studies, it does. It does because most people have enough willpower to last six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks. But the long-term studies show that it usually leads to binge or people abandon the calorie restriction or restrictive or depriving diet and end up putting on more weight because they have craved so much of the energy that they're no longer getting or the nutrition that they're no longer getting or the food group that they're no longer getting. And so they swing all the way the other way. It's why it's called yo-yo dieting. It's why it's called going back and forth, all in or all out type thinking. And so we see this all of the time. And so again, eight weeks is not long enough to make some of these claims. It's not long enough at all to give long-term health advice to anybody. It's just not long enough. And I talk about this all the time. Restriction and deprivation eventually leads to binge. It's the wrong strategy for weight loss and overall health improvement unless you need a severe therapeutic response to a dire situation. Now, 
Next one is LDL cholesterol. So the change that they saw in the study was actually quite small and they made it sound really big on the documentary. They made it sound super impressive. And it was a 15-point drop. And in one day, you can drop more than 15 points in a single day. And it depends on the time your bloods were taken, your stress levels, the diet you're eating, the types of food you're eating. There's plenty of vegan options that are terribly unhealthy for you. So this is not a very impressive result for me. However, this is the one that they were really drumming home. Sure, it might be a positive trend, but for me, it's not convincing enough for me to factor it outside of what might be normal fluctuation. It could, in eight months, be pretty convincing, but for an eight-week study, this is not convincing for me personally at all. The other one that they were touting in the final episode is really impressive, and keep in mind, there were four episodes, and they really didn't talk science until the last half an hour of the final episode, where they were banging on about TMAO. So TMAO, and you're probably thinking, what is TMAO? Never heard of this before. So it's trimethylamine N-oxide, which I think is a very random metric to measure. However, depending on your belief systems about some of the things in the body um, and which part of the literature you focus on, TMAO could be something useful. And so they pulled something out of this blood test that did, it did change so they could say, wow, look how amazing. So what is TMAO? So it starts as TMA and it's converted to TMAO in the liver. Now, interestingly, it's actually made by gut bacteria as a result of digesting food such as red meat, egg yolks, full fat dairy, that kind of stuff. So you might be able to tell why it went down in the vegan group already because they didn't have that stuff in their diet. Now, there's some evidence that it is an indicator of increased inflammation and produces pro-inflammatory cytokines, but it does seem quite a random marker to be talking about to the public given that there's Literature which states that it's unclear and inconclusive about exactly what TMAO indicates or means in the overall disease process. And in the literature, there's competing viewpoints, both supported by data that, you know, it means something or it doesn't mean something. So now we've just concerned the public about yet another blood test result. They'll start panicking about and unnecessarily asking their doctor to add to the next blood test. And I think this was not a responsible conversation point or data point to specifically point you know, millions and millions of people on a documentary series too. Um, And sure, some people disagree. And and there's some people online that say it's not concern. Some people say it is concern. But I mean, how do we tell if it went down as a result of the exercise? Or did it go down as a result of just not including those foods in your diet? How do we know? You cannot determine whether it went down as a response to a vegan diet or just the absence of the food, if that makes sense. That's a technicality. But what I mean is the inflammatory response actually less or is there just less meat in the diet producing TMAO? You can't determine this. You can't determine this in the study. Now, something that was conveniently left out of the documentary series but appeared in the paper was that the vegan group had a decrease in vitamin B12, HDLC, which is high-density lipoprotein, which is your quote-unquote good cholesterol, and we saw an increase in triglycerides in the paper. Now, given the short-term nature of the study, this was not statistically significant, but there was a trend. Things were moving in a negative direction for vegans. And that's exactly what we would expect from vegans because B12 is, it's not found at all in a plant-based diet. B12 comes from animal products, animal proteins, animal food, right? And it's most concerning because Eventually, you need to be supplementing this every single day because if you don't, your body will fall apart because we are omnivores. We are not meant to be vegan. 
right? And one person in the actual study, their B12 went down 25% in eight weeks. And because there's no true sources of plant-based B12, the vegan supplements that you need to end up taking, to me, suggest that being vegan is not a natural diet because you need to use science and medicine and technology to produce a supplement or a tablet in a way that makes you feel good in the sense that, oh, this B12 is not derived from animals. So you're spending all of this money, resources, contributing to greenhouse gases because of the the B12 supplement factories that need to be created to produce this vitamin that you now need to supplement. If you need to use technology to get your diet right, it's not a natural diet in my opinion. And deficiencies of B12 are quite serious, especially to pregnant women and babies. Um, to the point that in babies, you can even cause brain damage. Um, so it's, it's very concerning that these things dropped in just eight weeks, which we would expect. We would expect. And like I've said before, eight weeks isn't much time. However, I think they should have been supplemented with the nutrients they cannot get from a vegan diet or at the very least advised about this. And they should have said this on the documentary because people should know that on a vegan diet, you cannot get B12 from natural plant-based sources. It's important that the public know. We can scare them about TMAO, but we're not going to tell them about the concerns of the vitamins and nutrients that they're not getting from the diet. What's more scary? Making them freak out about TMAO or not telling them that they're going to be nutritionally deficient in a severe way that will affect their energy levels and a number of other things that B12 is involved in? Which is worse? You decide. And the other thing in regards to talking about calories and weight loss is that the vegan group did lose weight, but most of that, and this is highly concerning, most of that was lean muscle loss, right? Not body fat. The omnivore group lost more fat and gained more lean muscle because they ate more protein, which supports muscle growth. And because many of these people got into the gym and got active and did exercise, that, that protein contributed to muscle growth. And you know, there's a range of other things that an omnivore diet will support in growing and healing and recovering the body. However, one very, very common thing with vegan diets is not enough protein. It's very common and vegans will argue every single day with you that you can get enough protein. And guess what? I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you. I'll just say it's a lot more challenging than being an omnivore. And one study participant said being vegan was very carby and another said they felt they had to stuff themselves to get the right amount of food in. And what that tells me is that there's no balance in the calorie to food volume ratio because they're not eating a true, complete human diet. And the the human body and a natural diet will figure out and match quite intuitively the food volume and calorie ratio. But if you're putting too much food volume in that's low in calories, you'll be in this situation, which makes you feel like you have to stuff your face and feel full and sort of gluttonous and a bit maybe brain foggy and bloated all the time because you've got to put so much food volume in that's low in calories. And if we think about vegetables and really light salads and that type of thing, things that are taking up a lot of physical space in the body and particularly think about like green leafy vegetables, they're not high in actual calories, but they take up a lot of physical space, which is one of the arguments generally speaking, and this is sort of unscientific, but it's often encouraged by scientific and nutrition organizations to eat the salad on your plate first, to fill up your stomach with the vegetables and the salads so that you physically fill the volume so that you can't overeat. But that often leads to binging and craving because sure, you might feel physically satiated, 
But as studies have shown, humans will continue to eat and overeat and overeat to hit their protein quota. So if you do that, then you've got a situation where you're going to overeat calories just to get enough protein, right? And that's what I believe, and this is a personal opinion, when they say they feel they had to stuff their food in to hit their food quota, that's what I believe is happening here, is that they're filling their stomach and their body with lots and lots of things that take up physical space that are not high in calories. So they need to continue physically overeating to get enough nutrition into the body. And interestingly, off the back of that, only one vegan reported that they would continue eating this way uh, after the study had finished, which, you know, low diet satisfaction leads to what? It leads to binge eating or at least overconsumption of healthy and ultra processed foods because people have cravings and needs and desires and their needs are not being met. We need diet satisfaction for people to be able to stick to diets. If it's unsatisfying, you won't stick to it because the second you're a little bit tired or a little bit stressed and you can't be bothered anymore, you're just going to give up or at least for that day. One little thing that's worth mentioning is that meat is not fast food. During the documentary series, they made these synonymous. They made fast food and processed meat synonymous with a cooking a steak at home by yourself. That is not true. Humans have been eating meat, depending on your belief system or resource, for about 3.5 million years. Only the last 70 to 100 years have we been hit with this plant-based or vegan nonsense at such a commercial level, which manipulates massive amounts of human behavior. Less or no meat is not the answer. Better nutrition is the answer. Meat is a high quality source of protein, healthy fats, vitamins, and minerals, often includes all of the things that you need to live really healthy, which are difficult or sometimes impossible to obtain, B12, through plant-based sources. In fact, the most common nutrient deficiencies worldwide include iron, vitamin B12, vitamin A, and zinc, all of which are best found through animal-sourced foods not a vegan diet, okay? And guess what? Sure, the argument will come through that you can get iron out of plants, but non-heme iron is much harder to, one, break down the plants to be able to absorb it, and then two, actually absorb it, right? And so you get a much lower amount from dark leafy greens, okay, than you do a steak. The best diet is the diet that has you feeling full and not over-consuming calories, hitting your nutrition quotas, hitting your physical volume of food quota, not feeling stuffed, not passing out from blood sugar crashes, not needing to continue eating stuff even when you're full because you can't get enough protein in on this particular diet, okay? And one little thing I want to mention, I'm going to talk about farming practices and that type of thing, but right now we're talking about human health and the science that was presented in this paper and this documentary, okay? There's other issues to talk about here. You'll also often hear the advice from Many other holistic health and wellness experts that are not brainwashed by the plant-based movement talking about getting 30 grams of protein in per meal. Now, let me give you an example of how this can end up a little bit messy and sending your body in the wrong direction on a plant-based or vegan diet. Now, let's, let's look at 30 grams of protein from meat. Looks something like 120 to 130 grams of lean steak, so beef. 135-ish grams of wild-caught salmon. Important that I said wild-caught, remember that. Or say 100 to 110 grams of a chicken breast. You're going to get about 30 grams of protein. Now, sure, you probably won't absorb all of that. And so most of us in this part of the conversation, and I mean omnivore prioritizing people, nutritionists, doctors, that type of thing, will actually encourage more of that so to ensure that you actually do absorb a total of 30 or more. 
And so, but the numbers I just gave you, 130 grams of steak, 135 grams of wild-caught salmon, 100 grams of chicken breast, those are all about 200 calories of energy. And so I want you to remember that number, 200 calories of energy. And so in order for you to get the same 30 grams of protein from a plant source, which I'd recommend for every meal, you will need 402 calories of lentils. So double the number. Or you'll need 833 calories of quinoa. So quadruple the number of calories. Or 456 calories of black beans, right? Another one that's about a little over double the number of calories. And so you're eating a lot more calories. And in addition to that caloric volume, what is included? Well, you're going to get some fiber that's going to pass all the way through, um, which, you know, there's lots of debates around whether we do or don't need fiber. But you're also going to get plenty of carbohydrates and some fats, right? So the problem with a lot of those plant-based protein sources, if we're going from whole real food, which I will say is something that was never said in the four episodes, nobody ever said whole real food. That's an important sentence, right? If you want to be any extreme diet, whole real food. But nobody said that. And so if we're talking whole real food, you're going to get heaps of carbohydrates that wrap this protein availability up in the lentils and quinoa and uh, beans and, and that type of, you know, that type of plant-based protein. And this is what I think led to the comment of one person saying, I feel like I had to stuff myself to get all my food in because when the caloric volume is too low in a physical amount of food that is very large, then you've got a problem. And when you are eating fake meat, meat replacements that are not indicative of anything that would be a whole real food or occur in nature, your nutrient receptors and satiation receptors are simply not registering that you're physically eaten enough because you have to keep eating as you're not getting enough nutrients in the plant-only diet and you're tricking your brain. And one of the examples of this is when we talk about artificial sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners trick your brain. They often convince your brain that you've just had sugar and then your body goes looking for that sugar and can't find it. And even artificial uh, sweeteners trigger insulin responses in some cases higher than actual sugar which again tricks your system to think something's there when it's not. And this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. And I would argue that in some cases, and I don't know this to be factual, I'm, I'm assuming this, which is that if you're eating plant-based meat, you are tricking your system. You're tricking your eyes. You're tricking your um, stomach and possibly your flavor receptors if it's, if it's tricking your brain into thinking you're actually eating protein and you're not actually getting it. There's a problem there, right? There's a disconnect between the information that you're your mouth gives your brain and then your brain gives your gut. If there's a disconnect there, we've got a problem. And I say this as somebody who's interested in being as natural as we can in the modern world, which I think is far better than this documentary presents. I, don't, I think this is actually not great advice for how we should eat because it involves so many fake meats, which are a major problem on their own. So if you're trying to lose weight or more importantly, lose body fat, not muscle, then prioritizing protein from plants is going to get very tricky and likely lead to nutritional-driven cravings and also flavor-driven cravings because we've learned that flavor equals a specific nutrient profile, which is what I was just talking about. And so if we don't send that information to the brain that then goes to the gut and then ends up in the blood, then we're going to keep looking for more food. We're going to have these cravings. We're going to be driven to keep eating because we haven't hit our nutritional quota that we need. And this has actually been proven in a range of different species, including mammals, which we are. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. 
If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Now there's loads of conflicting or wrong or misleading information in this documentary. And you know, at this point, calling it a documentary just feels like a bit of a fraudulent claim to make as it is. But first of all, the symbolism, the colors, the positivity, the cinematic imagery and the way that they presented everything, like it was delivered in a way that was really positive and uplifting and had this inspirational energy to it. And all of that plays a part in, in how these things uh, are presented to the world and how they make you feel as the viewer. One of the un- other interesting things that's of concern is that they didn't actually show us on the documentary or describe what was actually in the omnivore meals that they provided people with. Why? They're literally giving no attention to any meal that might have any type of animal protein in it. Now, we've already talked about the fact that author Christopher Gardner, PhD, receives funding from Beyond Meat, a fake meat alternative company. And Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers, they're ultra-processed. And it means that protein is often coming from wheat or soy. And you might be thinking, what? Protein from wheat or soy? Yeah, exactly. And these fake meats, these meat alternatives, they're hybridized proteins sprayed with glyphosate and Roundup you know, when they're in their original crop form. They're often genetically modified organisms. And the reality is they're ultra-processed foods. And they have loads of ingredients in them that really we don't need to be eating. And when people eat ultra-processed foods, guess what? Their triglycerides go up, which is something that most medical and nutrition professionals would observe as possibly concerning. The other thing is on that fake meat kind of conversation is the fake bacon. It's not a superfood and it's also not moral or ethically better. Because if you think about it, if you're trying to claim that a diet is morally or ethically better, what about the morals or the ethics of treating humans like they should be treated? which is giving them wholesome nutrition, not giving them ultra-processed fake foods that do not resemble foods that we would have eaten in nature. And the other thing is, if you're wanting to claim that the diet was a significant factor in these people changing their health outcomes, and we'll talk a little more about that in a second, then I would say championing an ultra-processed food diet just because it's vegan is not moral or ethical. Because you're actually letting the human being down. And sure, we project human values onto animals and there's a conversation to be had around that. But in this instance, I think giving people things that we haven't ever eaten that are less superior, that contain less of the nutrients that we need, is not moral or ethical in its own right. The other thing about this study is that we have no idea which thing produced the result. There's no control group. 
So there's no, nobody, they didn't run a ketogenic group or a carnivore group or a standard American diet group alongside these people to say, hey, this is how it changes from baseline. And they also added exercise. So how do we know it wasn't the exercise? We don't. You can't tease those two things apart. And so one of the other things is that there's a very large portion of the participants were women. And there's no evidence that raised LDL cholesterol is a single risk factor on its own for women at all. There was a couple of young middle-aged men in the study, not very many, it was almost all women. And there is some evidence that it is a concerning variable, the low LDL cholesterol, uh, the low density lipoprotein cholesterol in young middle-aged men. But the guys that were there were mostly a healthy weight, at least the ones that were presented on camera. And one thing that I'm really concerned about in all of this is that there was no attention given to muscle loss or the negative results for the vegans. Why? Muscle loss is hugely concerning. That is like a a sign that something is wrong when people are losing muscle and not losing much body fat, right? Why was this not shed a light on? True scientists would be looking at the results with curiosity, not presenting an iteration or a variation of those results so that people might believe an ulterior motive. It's very concerning that we, that discussion was not had. And there was the personal trainer guy, Naimi Delgado. I think I'm saying his name correctly, maybe. <laughs> but he said in this documentary, if you're eating animal products as well as processed foods, you're getting trans fat and saturated fat. And so he's making the implication that everybody that's eating anything that's not a vegan diet, trans fat and saturated fat. And the implication is that those fats are bad. Now, I agree that trans fat is bad. I don't think saturated fat's bad. Now, there's a whole conversation of podcasts we could do around that, but completely avoiding saturated fat, also not a good idea. Your brain needs it. Um, Your body needs it. Your uh, nervous system needs fats in the body. And one other side thing to mention is that presenting us with this personal trainer guy, Naimi Delgado, who is ultra ripped and jacked to the point that it looks like his body is maybe not legit. One, you can't really get that big naturally. And two, if you do a little bit of searching online, there is a lot of conversation around how many steroids that guy's taking. So don't think that that body is entirely plant-based because I'm almost certain that he is taking a ton of supplements and different bits and pieces to get himself that big. I don't know that factually, I just know enough about human uh, bodies and how you can get them fit and able and strong and amazing. And often it is using lots and lots of different pills and supplements, even if you are eating steak. So it's worth flagging that they, again, were presenting us with somebody fit and strong and amazing that maybe we should be like. Maybe they're trying to influence us and say, hey, look what you could become if only you were plant-based or vegan, right? The other vegan organization that was involved was Loma Linda University, you know, and there was the neurologist there that said the brain needs clean energy to heal itself with the implication that clean energy only comes from plants. And the interesting thing is that Loma Linda University, which is meant to be, quote unquote, one of the blue zones, Loma Linda, is that that group and organization have a heavy investment in the plant-based movement. And we actually talked a little bit about this uh, in podcast with Belinda Fetke, which was episode 207, which is worth going and listening to. And we're going to do more on that conversation as well, because the corporate rabbit hole of bullshit is quite deep. Now, they also referenced the convincing, the overwhelmingly convincing data around sexual health on the Game Changers documentary. This is just straight up horse shit. Honestly, The Game Changers was an absolutely terrible mockumentary. It doesn't deserve the title of documentary. 
And I did an episode, episode 49 on that, and they referenced that they found these amazing results from a plant-based diet on the Game Changers documentary. So what they decided to include in this documentary was a photo, a heat map of female vaginas in order to somehow determine that increase in blood flow was now related to the plant-based diet. Now, I have no way to prove that it wasn't, but also when they called one woman's vagina a forest fire, I thought, geez, that's mighty scientific. (laughs) It's very confusing. So they only got the women to watch porn and take heat maps of their vaginas. Now, maybe this is some indication of improved sexual health or blood flow. I don't know. But the study only had two time points, before and after. They should have been checked every week or every month for way longer than eight weeks. Usually even a six-month study would get criticism in the nutrition and diet and health world. And all of the clinical trials that I've ever been involved with as a scientist, which is mostly in just processing stuff in the lab and compiling giant spreadsheets of information, most of those studies were all many years long, which is what's necessary. And sure, I understand those studies involve or require lots of money and lots of funding and stuff like that. But the reality is that they need to be that long in order to get a a clear picture of what to expect and what is going on. The other thing is that speaking of the difference between men and women and the fact that so many women were included and only the women had this pornographic vagina photography going on, (laughs) is that it seemed like there was a very, very low number of men and all the women were overweight, pretty much, and that the men that were included were actually quite fit and quote unquote mainstream healthy, like average American kind of healthy. And so that doesn't provide a very good baseline, I would say, in regards to, you know, how this is actually going to change the vast majority of the American or Australian population. Because most people are overweight and on the way to all sorts of different, you know, metabolic dysfunctions. So I'm I'm not sure that's hugely representative, but I I also acknowledge that they were looking for twins and getting whoever they could to sign up to this. Um, And that's often a limitation of medical research and nutrition research is just you know, you get who you get when they sign up. And so, you know, I'm not blaming them for that, but I'm just saying that the men looked quite healthy per se compared to a lot of the women that were involved. Michael Greger, who's like basically God to vegans, and I really don't like that guy personally. He just, he's just got a way about him that just rubs me the wrong way. And he looks and feels like, you know, the kind of villain out of cartoons from when I was younger. But the fact that he compares meat to cigarettes, again, It's incorrect. He should be specifying processed meat, not steak at home, not roast lamb at home. They're not the same thing. And saying that meat causes cancer, well, we can, I'll do a whole episode on debunking that. And that research has been debunked by so many people. Again, it's not the meat that causes the cancer, just like it's not the kale that causes the toxicity from glyphosate. It's the glyphosate. It's the spraying of Roundup that causes the problem, right? It's the shit that's put into the cows and in the terrible farming situations that might cause health issues. It's not the meat. However, I will use this opportunity to acknowledge that uh, in this documentary, mockumentary, the issues of antibiotic resistance in farm animals and the health and welfare of individual animals and the infections that are involved or can appear in farm settings is a genuine concern. Animal health and welfare is a genuine concern. The health of the animals that we put into our body should be of concern. We want these animals to be as healthy as possible, devoid of disease and illness, and equally, where possible, they ideally don't need consistent injections of 
vitamins, of uh, antibacterials, of different medications that we will inevitably end up consuming as a result of eating the meat. So that is a concern. And I do agree with the presentation of that being a concern because that's something that needs attention and is possibly resolved with a transition and an alteration in farming standards or farming practices. Conversation to have with farmers, to be totally honest. However, don't be disillusioned by the focus of that particular issue by this documentary because many of the exact same issues exist with raising plants. It's just we have less of an emotional attachment to plants and we don't see them as human-like and we don't project human values onto plants, despite them being 100% a living organism, despite them releasing defense chemicals when they're harvested and cut and broken, right? So don't think that the plant-based community or plants or crops on farms are devoid of these same issues. We cover them in chemicals, we cover them in pesticides and herbicides to protect them from developing all sorts of issues. They're devoid of nutrition as well, so different things need to be artificially added to the soil. So it's a pretty similar issue, whether it's plants or whether it's meat, in my opinion. And I would love to get some farmers on to this show to talk about this particular issue. Now, we've already talked about this too, but I think this is worth an entire podcast on its own, but is the projection of human values onto animals. Animals are not humans. Do they deserve to be raised in situations where they're not harmed and they're, not, and they're healthy? Absolutely. Is there farms across the world which are not ideal? Absolutely. Are there awful farmers in the world? Absolutely. Are there farmers controlled by big agricultural industries that are holding them by the balls and by the throat to produce profits so they have to have their animals in terrible conditions? Absolutely. Now, in this documentary, one of the things they did poorly was show the same clip over and over and over again about how American farms are terrible and about how farms, cattle farms all around the world are awful. And it was the same clip. And sure, there's some of those which are terrible, but it's also not exactly as terrible as you think. And you should read by Diana Rogers, you should read Sacred Cow. I recommend reading that to understand the complexity of the issue. And we've had a number of farmers on this show, particularly on episode 309, where we had Tara and Natalie, fourth and fifth generation farmers from the US, talking about a lot of the myths that are put out there by the vegan community about how farms operate and how they are presented. And often the worst case scenario is presented by vegans as the only case scenario. And also tying this idea that, you know, cattle grazing is responsible for destroying the Amazon. Well, we discussed before that we need a lot more calories to get the same amount of protein out of foods. So how big do you think the farms need to be in order to be able to get enough calories into the population and enough protein into the population if we're only eating plants? The farms need to be absolutely enormous. And then we've got monocropping issues. And also I saw recently, so there's a famous vegan who was an ex-entertainment lawyer turned vegan endurance athlete, Rich Roll. You might, you might have heard of Rich Roll. He's got an enormous podcast. And he had a farmer on recently. Um, and this clip's been doing the rounds lately because it's so relevant to this. And the farmer was talking about the fact that no vegan wants to talk about this if he's got avocados, in order to produce enough, you need sort of 20 to 40 acres of avocado trees. And when you harvest and in the process of growing those avocados, you kill, and this is his, his words, again, not a scientific study, but I'm sharing this farmer's words. He kills between 35,000 and 40,000 gophers. He kills hummingbirds and bees as a result of spraying. He kills ground squirrels when he harvests. 
and he said, on average, there'll be 50,000 to 100,000 deaths, including spiders and ladybugs and ants and rodents and all of the ones I've just mentioned. And so any, any vegan or plant-based person that thinks that they're doing this to opt out of the cycle of life and harm is kidding themselves. And they just have no actual understanding of how nature works, of how farming works, of how anything works in the natural world. In, in the bush, in the wild, a bear doesn't walk up to a moose and say, hey, do you mind passing away? <laughs> right? And so this illusion that nature exists peacefully is a fallacy. And the idea that your diet can now influence that peacefulness of nature is also a lie that you're kidding yourself with. The more farms that exist in all areas mean the more harm that exists. And dare I say it out loud, harm is a part of being a living organism on this planet. The life and death cycle of plants, of bugs, of bees, of animals, that's part of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to go back into the ground. We're going to fill the ground with nutrition out of our own bodies, which is then going to grow grass, which is then going to feed the next cow. Right? This is all just part of the life experience. And marketing and advertising and our privileged world that has removed us out of nature so far to the point that we think that nature is terrible and mean and horrible to the point we need to change it, I think is a big part of the problem. Anyway, back to the study. One of the females in the study also said something that caught my attention. She said, COVID was hard and now I eat an entire tub of ice cream. And another one said, you know, I deserve two bowls of ice cream. And so what this tells me, which is part of my mission, right, is that most people have emotional aspects of their food consumption. They have emotionally driven reasons for eating unideal foods and consuming foods that are not, not good for them, right? And that's because food is emotional. And we often attach guilt, shame, loneliness, sadness, the absence of love, connection and nurture to putting foods in our body. And again, if this is not part of the solution, and I'm a firm believer in this, if emotional eating and the psychology and mindset around food is not a part of the conversation, which it needs to be in a world that is excessively abundant and has access to so much terribly ultra-processed food, much of which is vegan, then we're going to continue to have the same health problems, which is that people are going to use their emotions and thoughts and feelings to drive their uncontrollable desire and craving for food. And so that in itself is a huge problem. And most people that start dealing with some of their emotional stuff and their heavy stuff and the way that they've attached emotions or resolving emotions or numbing out from emotions to food, some of that stuff begins to change automatically without any nutrition guidance at all once they've started dealing with the reason they eat. And this is a problem in abundant rich countries because it's just so easy to spend a very low amount of money and have all of your pleasure dopamine uh, receptors hit and numb out and don't have to care and then you'll just do it tomorrow and then tomorrow never comes. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting that you know a couple of the people acknowledged that something changed which led them to believing they deserve ice cream or that eating an entire tub of ice cream was now okay. So it's just worth noting. The other thing to mention, a big part of the problem, ultra-processed food is to blame. Fast food companies are to blame, not meat eaters. Not meat eaters, not steak at home, not steak on the barbecue, not ribs at home, not roast lamb, not meat from regen farms or organic farms or even factory farms that are doing it right. That is not the place to put blame. It's not meat eaters. That's unfairly branding a community of people with messaging that is not accurate for them. 
Fast food companies, ultra-processed food companies are the people to blame. They're the mega hundred million, billion, trillion dollar industries and organizations that feed significant numbers of people in the world that put the demand on the farmers that then process the food in factories and add all of, the, all of these different chemicals and, and all of these different things. They are the problem. They are the problem. Legislation and policy should be forcing them to do better, right? Because when they do better, everybody else can do better. Otherwise, everyone's at the mercy of big ag and big food and big sugar and big fast food and big pharma. We're all at the mercy of them because they hold the most capitalist playing cards. And so we have to play their game. And I say we as if I'm a farmer. I'm not a farmer, but we being the world of people, right? Does this mean that farming practices could get better? Well, I hope they get better. I think pushing anything forward is fantastic. Does this mean all factory farms are bad? Absolutely not. Listen to episode 309 of my podcast. Absolutely not, right? Does this mean region farms are the only way? No, but regeneratively farmed operations are definitely good. And I thought it was interesting that they introduced Regen Farmer in this documentary to influence meat eaters to eat less meat. That's, you know, that was a bit manipulative, I would have thought, to say, hey, we've even got a meat eater that thinks you should be vegan. And he talked about going to 11 Madison Garden. And I was like, why are we talking to a farmer who had dinner at a vegan restaurant? Ain't nothing scientific about that, okay? This is a very manipulative documentary, if you're not catching on with that. (laughs) And... There was also discussions around the fact that the black community in the US were disproportionately affected by COVID and heart disease, and they have genetically worse outcomes with a range of different things. And I would argue that actually, they have genetically worse outcomes as a result of SAD, a result of the uh, standard American diet or the standard Australian diet. And the reason that they're in such unhealthy bodies in these countries is because genetically, they're more predisposed to gaining weight, to having blood sugar issues because they're genetically more predisposed to not being able to process or detox these horrific foods, which then leads them to be vulnerable to COVID or to heart disease or to insert medical or health problem. So I think blaming meat is wrong here again, right? It's the standard Australian or the standard American diet that then creates bodies and communities and groups that are significantly uh, more affected by these types of illnesses and diseases. Again, that's a misleading thing to say that because you're black, eating meat is going to kill you. Basically, that's the underlying message or you're more likely to have a disease because you're black in the US as a result of eating meat. At least that's the implication given in a documentary like this. And it's just not right because there's lots of communities across the world that are negatively affected by the Western diet that were totally fine before the Western diet came and fucked up their lives. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the smear campaign against farmers, I sort of touched on that already, and I recommend reading Sacred Cow by Diana Rogers. Um, also, the DexaFit lady said to one of the vegans that lost uh, muscle and struggled to keep up with her workouts, she said, working out more might have led to building more muscle. Um, no, she lost muscle. So if you had have increased the metabolic requirement on the body, she would have lost more muscle right? Because she was clearly not getting enough nutrition. If you lose muscle, you are not getting enough protein and nutrition to maintain that muscle. And so by her saying, if you worked out more, you might have maintained or built more muscle, that is misleading because unless she ate a significant amount of protein, that would not have happened. She would have just continued to lose muscle because she was increasing the metabolic demand on those muscles. And keep in mind, 
not only is losing muscle a concern for physical activity and managing your body, but it's also an endocrine organ. Your your muscle across your body acts as an endocrine organ, which, which helps with hormonal management. And so the less muscle you've got and the more muscle you lose, the more likely you are to have a more difficult time with stress and hormonal management across the board. So I think this is a bit of a confusing statement to make that if you worked out more, you might have built muscle when to a woman that already lost muscle on the diet. I'm like, hang on, that doesn't make much sense. I get the, I get the logic, but if you don't actually understand the nutritional requirements that are required to build muscle, then that sentence makes no sense. And then in the next breath, this DexaFit woman said that she was hoping that someone on a vegan diet would gain muscle. And interestingly, in the study, only one person did. Whoa, the rest lost muscle. That's a major concern. If there's anything you take away from this study, it's that in eight weeks, a group of vegans lost muscle after going from an omnivore diet. That, I think, is the biggest concern out of this diet. There was also one of these weird scenarios in the, in the final episode. So during the uh, results review in that last fourth episode, one of the omnivore guys that gained muscle and lost fat, for some reason, I think he was fed this line by the directors, but he said he thinks he's going to go more plant-based. Why? If he wasn't fed that line, then he has been indoctrinated by being a part of the study and his experience because that seemed, it seemed random and to not make sense after they'd just been presented with their results and he did well and his brother didn't have as good a results as him. I was like, what? It seemed very out of place, that line. So it feel, feels like, yeah, he was fed that line for the cameras. Another interesting fact that was brought to my attention by some of the low-carb community was that Professor Gardner, the main guy of the, that ran the study, he actually used to do studies and work focusing on triglycerides as indicators for poor health. And so some of the doctors that are in that low-carb space are sort of saying that this is evidence that he's been bought out and sold out to the vegan community because his previous work was in identifying triglycerides as an indicator for poor health. However, in this study, we saw triglycerides go up in vegans. And so it's like, hang on, does this conflict with your previous career dedication? Or like, why is this happening? And so they're sort of suggesting that possibly Professor Gardner is being paid too much by these companies. And so he's ignoring research that he is quite competent and expert in assessing and, and determining in order to prioritize the forwarding of this agenda. Um, the other thing that's super concerning in this, again, I've already kind of touched on this, no control group, short-term studies are a concern across the, the whole medical and, and nutritional community. Um, and just to clarify, red meat is not pepperoni on your pizza. It's ultra-processed meat that is the problem, right? Ultra-processed meat is the problem, not meat, not steak, not roast, not chicken breast, none of that stuff, okay? That, that must be separated. Now, there's a few things that they did get right, and I just want to quickly, before we wrap up, I want to acknowledge what they got right. Presenting this documentary allowed us to understand that the reality of diet and nutrition data collection is tricky because some people stuck to what they should do, some people didn't, some people stopped the workouts, life got in the way, and this is indicative of normal people, which is, is good that they presented it to us like that. Um, they also, you know, presenting the fact that shifting people away from the standard American diet or the standard Australian diet, it has to be multi-tiered because there are multiple things involved. The farming system's involved, the feed for farmers involves, the local communities that these farmers live in and the people are affected by the farming, that, that's an impact. Policy and legislation is an impact. What we do with schools and prisons has to come into the conversation. You know, the USDA and the guidelines that govern this and the TGA in Australia and the various nutritional organizations that influence this have to be involved, which involves politicians getting behind socially 
uh, relevant ideas around food and nutrition. And it also involves us, the individual consumer, voting with our dollar. We need to go to the supermarket and purchase. Business will only change. And there was a sentence like this in one of the episodes where they said, businesses will go towards whatever's most profitable and makes the most sense. And making the most sense is not always the most profitable. So we have to make the right thing profitable by spending our dollars in the right place. That's up to us as the individual, right? The other thing is that um, diet, they mentioned that diet and lifestyle is the biggest factor for Alzheimer's disease, not your genetics. And I'm very, very happy that they said, said that. And I would say that's the case for almost all disease. Um, and I want you to remember that, which means it puts you in the driver's seat. It's not whether your mum had it or your dad had it. It's how you are living, eating, and, sh- and setting your life up. Um, another thing that, they, that was really great is that the court and the jury, they granted the North Carolina residents $470 million in damaging for being sprayed with pig shit. <laughs> now, that's fair enough. Good. I think that you know we should be held accountable to healthy farming practices that affect humans. So I think I think that's good. I think that's a, a good thing that came out of, or, or at least that was shared in this documentary. And as the chicken farmer said, again bringing attention to this, that the big ag, which is in bed with big pharma and big food, like it's all it's all controlling our whole world basically. In many instances, he said they own the chickens, they own the feed, they own the medications, and they own the infrastructure on his property. And so he's effectively a slave to those huge corporations that trap farmers into decade-long and multiple decade-long contracts. This, the same thing happens in the, the crop industry and the vegan industry. And you know it's weird to call a crop farm part of the vegan industry, but I'm saying that for context, is that don't think that plant-based farmers or farms that only grow plants have it any better. We've talked about this on this podcast with Regen Ray before. Um, you can check out his episodes, uh, episode 151 and episode 237, where we talk about the fact that some of these farmers are trapped into these deals that are dictated by these mega billion dollar corporations, right? And it's, it's very concerning. So I think it's good that this documentary, mockumentary, presented this information to us because we need to know that these are complex things. But the interesting thing is this, the little guy in the end, you and I, we dictate it all by where we spend our dollars and they will move. They will move to where we spend our dollars because they're all in it for dollars. Also, telomeres increasing in length, that's pretty good. That's a marker for longevity and living a long life. So I think telomeres increasing in length, pretty good. However, again, short-term study, limited information about what else changed during that time, only two time points, not enough data, but generally speaking, telomeres getting longer is good. Also, yes, the salmon farming industry is a bit fucked up and I'm going to do a whole episode on that soon. Um, and that needs significant attention, particularly here in Australia. But being vegan is not the way. And if you've watched Sea Spiracy, the final message in that is basically be vegan in order to save the fish. That's not the answer. Again, being vegan is not the answer. Whichever diet requires you to use medicine and science that creates, that uses technology to create supplements, supplements are not, B12 supplements are not a natural diet. And we didn't need to eat them for the last bazillion years, however long we've been here. And so the fact that all of a sudden for the last, you know, half a century, the idea of finding B12 in a non-animal source is a good idea to supplement your vegan diet because vegans some kind of ethical and moral privilege is, well, it's ridiculous. <laughs> You're an omnivore. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about the fact that you were meant to eat meat. Get your B12 from a steak, basically. <laughs> but anyway. Salmon farming is messy and not good, and we have a big problem here in Australia, but we'll talk about that on another podcast. 
Also, the farmer, the chicken farmer, brought attention to the idea of the legal definition of free range, which I think is really, really important um, because that is misleading to the public, especially when you buy eggs in the supermarket and it says free range, and you have this these pretty pictures or this pretty romantic idea in your head of like these chickens frolicking around a amazing green paddock with nobody nearby, no other chicken nearby. It's just not that. It isn't. Again, it is on some farms, but the legal definition is much tighter than that. And so some farmers, not all farmers, but some farmers do the absolute bare minimum, okay? Another thing that was awesome was the community gardens. I think community gardens are great. I think that's a fantastic idea. We need to get more connected to where our food is coming from. And so I think it's extremely beneficial to um, to everybody watching to maybe get involved or inspired to join a community garden. However, not under the premise of being vegan. However, if you are going to be vegan, then doing it with Whole real food is the answer, right? Whole real food, not ultra-processed fake bullshit meat that's got heaps of random shitty chemicals in it. Whole real food is the answer. All right, so I've been banging on for a while here, but I want to talk to you about just a few last words and final words that come to mind that I think should be mentioned. And one of those is to remember that uh, what these farmers are doing or the farmer that was presented in this documentary, how he's now moving to doing mushrooms and how we saw in 11 Madison Garden, the restaurant, how they're using these different mushrooms and different foods to mimic the, the type of texture and food and styling of meat. It's very important that I highlight this to you from a nutrition standpoint. Mushrooms as a burger is not protein. These foods of that are often replaced for meat do not provide the same nutritional profile. You need to get protein into your body. However, the reality is that some of these foods that they're mim- trying to mimic for protein sources are not. They're just simply not, right? And the other thing to remember overall in regards to this is, and it's ironic that I'm going to make this statement, but history and ideas are shared by those people with the microphone. And those people that have the resources to get their message to millions of people. And that's ironic because I'm holding a microphone. But I'm not Netflix. I'm nowhere near as big. I'm just advocating for fair, reasonable science and for diets and nutrition that have proven to be optimal for thousands and thousands of years. It's only in the last 50 to 70 to 100 years that we've all of a sudden gotten really confused as to how to optimize the human vessel and avoid disease. There have been thousands, if not millions of years of human history, which had very, very clear ideas. Aboriginal history, Chinese history, Mayan history. And I'm not saying that they were perfectly healthy or didn't, were devoid of disease, but we got this far without having to do all of this scientific research and have documentaries that claim all sorts of wild, restrictive situations um, that are attached to all sorts of different belief systems and economic incentivized, you know, films and products and that type of thing. So remember that ideas and history are shared by those people with the microphone, um, and and often things are communicated to you through authority with people that have an agenda. So that's worth that's worth considering. The other thing is one thing that this film highlighted, which I thought was relevant, is that vegan is a diet of privilege. And I think that that was displayed nicely by the fact that 11 Madison Garden costs 355 US dollars to eat there. That's 537 Australian dollars to eat at a restaurant, which is an enormous amount. And so to me, this is a a nice little metaphor or analogy for how much it actually costs to successfully do vegan. 
Now, obviously, you don't go to 11 Madison Garden for the nutrition. But my point is that being vegan is quite costly. And getting vegan right and not eating Oreos, which are vegan, um, as your source of food, it's not going to be cheap. And the biggest bang for your buck is probably going to be meat from a farm, believe it or not, when it comes to nutrition and how much it costs you to feed your family and kids and that type of thing. Remember too, Netflix is a business. Big agriculture is a business. Big farmers are a business. And you and I are businesses. We're all trying to earn a little more to get a little bit further ahead. And so everything comes with a grain of salt and Netflix is trying to get downloads and create controversial content. So we all, you know, watch it and record podcasts about it and put it out there to the world. So just, you know, remember these, there's always an angle. There's always an angle. And you might say, yeah, Maddie, that you've got an angle. It's like, well, that's a fair argument. My angle, again, is human health. And my angle personally is for us to realize that in this privileged, abundant world that we're in, or excessive world, you might even say, is that our emotions and mindset drive a lot of our behavioral decisions around food. And I want to be able to help people with that. So that's, you know, that's, that's my agenda is I want to be able to help you with that through my programs and services. So, you know, link in the show notes below. The other thing is that I want to say is that fake meat should not be called meat. Actually, all fake products should not be called the product that they're trying to imitate because it misleads the public. It mis- misleads you and I as to what we're actually buying. Coconut yogurt should not be called yogurt. It has an extremely different nutrient profile to actual yogurt. Cashew cheese, it should be illegal to call it cheese. I genuinely think there should be legislation and policy that says you cannot call it yogurt, you cannot call it cheese, you cannot call fake bacon bacon, you can't use the word bacon, you can't call mushrooms burgers, you can't do this. Impossible burger, beyond burger, it should be illegal to call these things burgers. It should be not allowed. I genuinely believe that. Fake meats should not allow to be called fake meat. It should have its own name so that we know simply by the wording that it is not that. And it doesn't give you the illusion that you're getting protein or that you're getting the nutrient profile that yogurt, cheese, bacon, or burgers would actually give you. This stuff tricks and manipulates the brain into thinking that you are getting what you need, just like artificial sweeteners do, which we touched on earlier. Now, I've said this a few times, but I'm going to say it again. The vegans lost muscle. That's concerning. All right. And there's this controversial idea about feeling great on a vegan diet, right? And that's often usually to the fact that in phase one of a diet, when you go vegan or any diet, is that you feel amazing. And everybody says, I feel amazing going vegan. And so I would challenge that idea and say, so every time you feel amazing, you should do more of that. Because I feel pretty amazing on magic mushrooms, but probably shouldn't stay there very long. I feel pretty great sunbaking on the beach, but I shouldn't stay there very long. I feel great eating chocolate, but I shouldn't stay there very long. Long term, all of these things have consequences. And when things feel amazing, that's great. But a lot of things that feel amazing have long-term consequences. And often vegan turns into nutrient deficiencies. We actually had a nutritionist and personal trainer on episode 10, the first ever interview on this podcast who was vegan for almost a decade before her nutritional deficiencies showed up. So I'd recommend going to listen to episode 10. And I would say, given my area of work and research and experience and stuff like that, is that vegan diets can actually be a good temporary therapeutic response to a serious medical or health situation. But as a way of life, this documentary should be called a mockumentary. And I'd encourage only those on Saturn or Venus to take it seriously as dietary advice. And one little take-home message, and maybe some people will call me a dickhead for saying this, is that, yeah. You are what you eat. And guess what? You're meat and flesh. And so you should probably consider eating 
meat and flesh of animals. This has been me, Maddie Lansdowne, on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you know the deal. Share it with some people. Let people know. Let me know what you think. Do you think this is all bullshit or I'm just part of the, the animal protein mafia that's putting information out there? <laughs> If you've made it this far into this episode, I appreciate you being here. Thank you for listening and I would love to have further conversation with you about this. And in the meantime, I will see you on the next episode or don't hesitate to check out any of the podcast episode numbers I've mentioned in this show. All right, I'll see you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode or learnt anything at all, the gift of your five-star rating would be incredibly helpful. And what's even more powerful is if you write a review. You can do it below each episode on Spotify every time an episode comes out. And inside Apple Podcast, simply find the main page of this show with all the episodes on it, scroll to the bottom, hit write a review, share your amazing feedback, and then hit send. It helps this show grow tremendously and allows me to successfully invite bigger and more famous guests each time we do the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us climb the charts, climb the algorithm and help more people. Oh, and by the way, I have a short disclaimer as well. I just wanted to quickly remind you that the information provided on this podcast is for general informational purposes only. While we strive to bring you accurate and up-to-date content, it's important to note that a lot of this is mixed with opinions, stories, and ideas not supported by mainstream science or medicine. Any advice or suggestions should not be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult a healthcare provider before making any decisions about the health and wellness of you and your family. Remember too that what works for one person may not work for another. And just as we promote on the show, each person is responsible for their own health decisions. Thank you for tuning in to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. And now, the next episode. Here it is.